Welcome to Conservation Realist, a podcast hosted by me, Dr. Tara Sayuri-Witty. This episode brings us to the end of interviews with conservation researchers for this year, but I have a couple more episodes to share before this year ends. So this chat is with my colleague and dear friend, Mark De La Paz. We met in 2010 when he was a master's student at Silliman University on our mentor, Dr. Luella Dolar's expedition to resume study of Irrawaddy dolphins in the Iloilo Strait off Kimaras Island in the Philippines. So I'd been on the first survey there in 2009 where we'd seen dolphins and I'd observed Luella interviewing fishers and that was my first exposure to interview-based fieldwork, and I was captivated. Well, in 2010, the dolphins never showed up in Iloilo Strait, and we ended up going around the bend of Guimaras Island and across the Guimaras Strait to the island of Negros, and Luella managed to find dolphins there. Um, specifically, the dolphins showed up near the areas of Bago and Pulupandan in Negros Occidental just a bit south of the big city of Bacolod, where Mark actually grew up and where his family still lives. So while everyone else was searching fruitlessly for dolphins in Iloilo Strait on that trip, Mark and I were traipsing around the island by trike, finding fishers to chat with about the dolphins and their coastal resources and fishing in general. And this was my pilot season of conducting interviews for my PhD research. And uh, Luella had wrangled Mark into assisting me for these initial interviews. And I just want to add, I'm so grateful to everyone who's helped me uh, in conducting these field interviews um, in every country where I've worked. Um, It was a great learning experience for both of us, as you'll hear. Mark went on to continue working on the conservation of the dolphins in his home island for many years after finishing his master's, and this included establishing a thriving research program at the University of St. LaSalle, Bacolod, where he went on to uh, teach after his master's. So I think that this is an especially important conversation for this podcast because it honestly shows what can happen when quote-unquote progress can seemingly bulldoze over years of conservation effort and how that feels emotionally for people who have invested so much time and energy into conservation efforts. Mark's project on the Dolar Pod, our name for these dolphins after Dr. Luella Dolar, Um, has been faced with the impending threat of a major bridge development right through their critical habitat. And with the Philippines being a remarkably unsafe country for environmentalists, this was an extremely difficult experience for Mark. I really appreciate him being willing to share how he's dealt and is dealing with all of this. Mark's been a great friend and a colleague with whom I've always enjoyed sharing ideas and questions. I did some of my PhD research on, again, what we fondly call the Dolar Pod at his field site in Negros, and his wonderful family really took care of me and also my sister when she worked with me whenever we were in Bacolod. 
He's one of the people I'm most excited to catch up with whenever we're at a conference together. And he helped organize and also joined the exchange trip between uh, Myanmar Coastal Conservation Lab and the Philippine Reef and Rainforest Conservation Foundation at Danhugan Island off of Negros, which was an amazing experience for the Myanmar team. Um, and by coincidence, he's now getting his PhD at Hiroshima University. And that's where my mom's side of the family is from. We actually got to catch up in person in Hiroshima earlier this year, which was so nice. Another thing about Mark that you might notice, he is chronically humble about his work. Too humble, I think. And I'm not alone in this opinion. Jean, one of our friends, actually from an earlier episode, another fantastic chat, um, actually chose him as an unsung hero of conservation. And this reveals an upcoming episode. At the end of each interview, I had the guests answer three rapid-fire questions, including who is an unsung hero that should get more recognition in conservation? For whatever reason, I thought I'd include all of those responses in a compilation episode at the end, which will be a royal pain to edit. I don't know why I did that to myself, but it will be good. And now you have a teaser for it. And what else? Also, for some context, we regularly, jokingly, tease our dear friend, Dr. Louisa Panampalam, for her partiality to finless porpoises. And yet, Mark himself is now studying them for his PhD. So let's listen to a clip from the lovely song, The Green Touch, by Somo Twin, Ziantet, and Min Min. And let's get into this conversation. Yeah, I'm doing well over here, just busy, but I really enjoy doing these interviews. So I enjoy listening to your interviews. I, I just listened to your last episode again. Uh, while cooking breakfast. Oh, good. <laughs> Second <laughs> time. <laughs> I, I like your monologues. I mean, it gets more of your, your own personal ideas. Thank you. I'm shocked by how long I can talk and not realize how much time. You have so much to say, and, and it's great. I think I think it was even looking for more, asking for more. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's too short. Well, I feel that way about everyone I talk to as well. Like any one mm -hmm. of you, I could listen to speak for, you know, hours and hours just to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that you're doing this and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm enjoying listening to it. That means a lot. That means a lot. Thank mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And how are, how are you doing over there? Well, I'm still busy with my data, trying to figure out how I can do this with my data. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've actually been telling myself I need to read your papers again. Okay. Because I, like I said, I wanted to to write this in a conservation point of view, and like I was thinking about exploring interview surveys, like what you did before. Right. Yeah. But I'm not sure I I can do it. <laughs> well, um, we can also just chat some other time about that. 
Uh, sure, thanks. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, have you been seeing some porpoises lately? Mm, the last one that we saw was the dead purpose. And so I did a short necropsy, not enough to tell me anything yet. I, I haven't opened the stomach yet. I just mm. brought it to the lab. But after that, we didn't see any more the week after. Also because our surveys were, aren't that regular anymore. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is that picture behind you? I assume that's from... Oh, this is from Gimmer, from Negros. Uh, it's a mom and calf. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah, I miss them. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> They're so different from the Finnish purposes. Really? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what Luisa sees in them. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe someday you'll be able to visit the Gulf of Motama. There's a lot I, of I want to. out yeah. there, and they're super close to shore. Oh, and, really? Um, yeah, I don't know what they're like out where you are, but pretty frequent sightings. And You mean the porpoises or the Irrawaddy dolphins? Both, but the porpoises are the ones we're seeing very close to shore. And oh, by really? we, I mean not me because I'm not there. But <laughs> Yeah, well, I can imagine that the Gulf is like, like a very wide, sandy area, right? Muddy area. Right? Muddy, very shallow. Yeah. Oh. So, uh, yeah, that might be, if you're going to get excited about finless porpoises, that might be a place to do it. I hope so. But if it's muddy, then probably it's harder to, like, record them with a drone, right? Yeah, maybe. Mm. I'd like to look into it, but um, I haven't had many survey days out there myself, just because it's not the easiest to get foreigners into the field. Uh -huh. um, so I don't know. I'll have to talk to the team about how the water visibility changes yeah when i've been out there it's been especially close to shore it's very muddy um, yeah i can imagine it's probably the same as in negros right muddy muddy yeah, muddy, yeah. <laughs> chocolate milk but they're doing um i have to follow up with them they've got some hydrophones donated to them some f pods oh that's nice that's nice yeah i want to try that too in the future okay yeah, I highly recommend it. Well, just because there's people who can help with that. So. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. So I um. It's nice to see you again after having met up briefly. I know. Yeah, that's it's really nice, and it's uh, nice for me to see your brother and your whole family. Actually, I, I always see them on Facebook. It was yeah. really nice to finally see them. <laughs> yeah, I wish I'd had time to to see your parents again too. Uh, well, you're always welcome to visit the Philippines. I hope to. I hope to. I really hope to, in the near future. Mm -hmm. in the near future. <laughs> we will welcome you there always. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So you and I met on my second trip to the Philippines. So I'd been with mm -hmm. Manila mm -hmm. the year before, <clears throat> and then uh, it's hard to believe this was in 2010. That you and I were 2010. Yeah, I know. It was so long time ago. Yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the start of my second year for my master's, yeah. Okay, yeah. So I was just getting the ro getting to know the ropes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was so cool to me because, as you know, my PhD took me to many different sites. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I only really focused in Melampaya Sound. The other ones were kind of quick visits, but it was cool to me to think that over all my years doing that, 
and then my postdoc, and even into my work in Myanmar, you were steadily working on the dolarpod. <laughs> the dolarpod, yeah. On these Gimaras and Iloilo straight dolphins. And I always thought that was mm, kind of comforting in a way that someone. Well, be also because it was very convenient for me because the site was just like 40 hour, a 40 minute drive from where I stay. Yeah. So very convenient, and I really felt at home. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> Had you known when you were growing up in Bacolo that there were dolphins or porpoises off the coast? Never, never. Uh, a lot of people don't even know that there are dolphins in the Philippines. So. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> I was really surprised. Yes, that was the first time, right? I mean, when we started interviewing, a lot of people said they never heard about dolphins in that area. Wow. And even I was doubting, why were we doing this? Why were we looking for <laughs> dolphins that I never heard of. So <laughs> yeah, that was really something for me because um, what was known before was there were dolphins on the other side of the island in Tanyon Strait uh, where they had a very lucrative dolphin watching industry. So, and it was a clear, uh, it was a, the habitat was clear blue waters and like very, um, th the typical habitat for the typical dolphins that we know of. So that's what, <laughs> That, that's what that we knew of. We never knew that our muddy waters had a special kind of dolphin like the Irrawaddy dolphins. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, every time I go to muddy waters now in Southeast Asia, I'm like, are there... Could there be... I know. Me water? too. <laughs> every time I fly the, uh, the plane to Manila and I just look at the window and I see a muddy muddy uh, area, I, I'm already <laughs> looking for Irrawaddy dolphins. <laughs> Yeah, and we've talked about this before. It would be such a dream to be able to do this like large-scale exploration of possible yeah. Irrawaddy dolphin habitat. Um, what our research really made me realize was there was so much poss possibility of discovering more populations that we never knew before. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot of work to be done out there. Um, but I think the work you've done really touched on another big gap in the work on the species and a lot of similar species, which is focusing on a site and figuring out, okay, how do we actually conserve these small subpopulations, right? Well, I was still, I'm still learning the, how to do it, the ropes. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you, I think you have, among the people I know, you're one of the people with the most on the ground experience with that for Irrawaddy dolphins. I hope you realize oh. Well, yeah, because I've been just based there. <laughs> yeah. And um, I told Jean I was going to say this to embarrass you, but I interviewed her um, earlier in the week. Oh, Jean? Jean. Mm -hmm, oh, really? Oh. <laughs> you, you were the unsung hero she listed at the end of the Oh, week. wow. That's so touching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think you tend to underestimate the work you've done. Uh, but the rest of us looking at what you've done are, are always very impressed. So just for the sake of everyone listening, can you share a little bit about your history with the Irrawaddy dolphins over the years? Okay. Um, yeah, well, I was a grad student when uh, when I entered grad school. I never knew. I was not sure. I wasn't sure what I was going to work on. Mm. And I just thought of oh, maybe whales and dolphins are something interesting that I can work on. But I never knew where it would lead to. And then uh, on my second year, uh, our director, Dr. Kalumpong, 
she told me to join the surveys of Dr. Dular, who was that time uh, the studying a population in Gimaras Island. And I was so excited because uh, at least now there's direction for my research. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that's where we also met each other on your second trip to the Philippines, right? And uh, during the first days of field work, uh, it was my first time to work with Dr. Dular and with you. And I was at first kind of frustrated that she assigned me to be your translator. <laughs> <laughs> because I was already excited to get my feet wet, but then she told me, "Can you translate for Tara?" And then, okay, 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 because I, I speak the language. Yeah, but that was also very eye-opening for me. So mm-hmm. much learning on that first day that uh, that you trained me how to ask questions to fishermen. First, I didn't appreciate it, and then I realized the amount of knowledge that you were able to get from fishermen. Mm-hmm. That's what I keep. Telling my students now, um, th- these fishermen, um, they know more than the marine biologists do because they spend more time in the oceans, while the marine biologists are mostly in their laboratories uh, mm-hmm. or in their on their laptops. So they, they, they know more. They've experienced more. That's what I really learned from you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, during that, we did two days, right, of, of interviews or one day at first. I don't know how many. I think it was at least two days. Two days, yeah. And then when we finally decided to join the team during the surveys, they were mm-hmm. already frustrated because they didn't find any early dolphins. And right. maybe we were the lucky ones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then we spent, I think, 10 days uh, just going around Gimaras Island looking for the Irrawaddy dolphins. And we couldn't see any of them. And we just mm-hmm. kept on asking with the fishermen. And I also found how how useful that was, how much information that we could get from fishermen mm-hmm. until they pointed us to go back to Negros Island, my home island, which was just <laughs> the island next to Gimaras. Yeah. And um, I was already doubtful in Negros. There's no such thing. I, I wouldn't believe that. Uh-huh. So we started asking questions in Negros Island and I was already rolling my eyes and then there was this one fisherman who led us to his village and he said that, yeah, we see dolphins there almost every time we go out to sea. And everybody on the team was so excited. And uh, the next day, we, we arranged for these boats to take us there to where the dolphins were supposed to be. And I can really remember it. It's fresh on my mind. It was really rough that, that time. And, mm. and we, I think we spent an hour looking for them until we finally saw them. And I finally saw my first Irrawaddy dolphin. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was really happy. I was so surprised. Wow, wow I can't believe it. Wow, and that was really... We didn't see any in Gimaras that trip. No, that time we didn't. Oh, so wow. I've never seen an Irrawaddy dolphin in Gimaras ever since I started my research. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah, I guess that started everything else. And we started uh, talking to the local government units um, telling them about the Irrawaddy dolphins. And then there were some people who validated us who, who claimed that they, they did see the dolphins there before or it was known to have dolphins there before. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think the rest of his, his history, we started with the research. We uh, brought in more people from Silliman University to do more research on the on the biodiversity of that area. And um, eventually, I... So I, I was with the dolphin team, and eventually after I finished my master's, my master's thesis, I started working in the University of St. Lasalle in Bacolod, where 
was where I also graduated. And I just continued the research after then. And then it took some students to help me uh, with the research. And until maybe we we did research until 2018, 2019. Okay. Yeah, and we, we got a lot of studies done and that's something i also learned um i let my students continue what i did for my masters and at first i was like um this is a master's worth of research how could my undergraduate students do this but they did they did and um i realized it's not really about the amount of time that you spend doing your research it's, it's also just uh letting them do it and letting them get the data and it's mm -hmm. also the quality of data that they get yeah so yeah a lot of these researches have been published uh, and we were able to share this with the community. We couldn't do all these things without getting permission from the local government units, from the community. So we had to do a lot of um, coordination with the fishermen community and we shared these data. And uh, we started, because we had this data, we, we had projects with GIZ and um, the the main purpose of at first the first phase of the project with Suleiman University was to was to characterize the habitat of the royal dolphins and yeah. we also did surveys in Guimaras and then we found that we couldn't find any more dolphins in Guimaras they were mostly just in Negros Island so weird okay mm -hmm. yeah so we had this data we shared it with the community and um, our recommendation at the end of the project was to create marine protected areas what mm -hmm which we followed through when I was already in the University of St. LaSalle, we applied for another grant to establish marine protected areas in that area. So we had to put in more socioeconomic um, components to that um, conservation endeavor. And that was one of, I think, the most fulfilling part of my career was uh, just working with the community, um, working with, with fishermen, with uh, counselors, uh, different stakeholders, we had to convince them why putting up a marine protected area was going to benefit not only the dolphins, but also the fishermen and all the other stakeholders. Uh, that was the fun part because at first we met a lot of resistance from the fishermen, especially because, of course, if you were a fisherman, why would you want uh, people to limit your fishing grounds, right? right. So, well, coming from a, a background being trained by Dr. Alcala, Mm. who was the pioneer of marine protected areas in the Philippines. Um, we started educating them. We showed them examples like Apo Island, um, how this benefited the fishermen in the long term and mm. why their involvement was very important. And through the years, um, it's just there was a change in their behavior, which I mm. was able to see. Eventually, uh, through the years, they were the, the fishermen themselves were the ones asking me to push the local government to create the marine protected areas, which was really moving for me. Yeah. At first, they were very resistant. And then through education, through collaboration, they were able to convince themselves that uh, marine protected areas were indeed helpful for them. So I saw that change and I was... That was one of the most fulfilling part of my career. Yeah, seeing people work with you uh, yeah. for conservation, um, conserving an Irrawaddy dolphin species isn't easy because right. um, you're talking about 
um, interactions with fishermen who would, of course, always say, how about us? Why are you conserving an animal? And while we are living in poverty, having a hard time even feeding ourselves, uh, how about us? Why why are the dolphins much of your priority than, than us? So yeah. it was really hard. Yeah. Not just the dolphins. It's the whole ecosystem that you want to preserve. Yeah. Sorry, Mark. My internet cut out for a second. So that's why um, it um, was fulfilling for us. Yeah. My internet cut out for a second. So oh, sure. I missed part of what you said. The part you said before, it's not just the dolphins. Yeah, we were uh, looking into the ecosystem approach. Mm -hmm. We had to convince them that uh, everybody was a stakeholder. Everything is interconnected. I mean, it's it's funny how I got to repeat that that principle that I learned way back in high school or in grade school that everything is interconnected. So okay. I had to convince them everything is interconnected. We, uh, What happens to the dolphins will eventually affect you. So it was hard to convince without uh, really solid science, Or, mm -hmm. but we had to convince them that everything was just uh, connected, right? Yeah. So yeah, that was, that was the, I think that's the whole story of how it <laughs> went through. And I, again, what I lack in my career for the most part is exactly what you experienced is that long-term commitment to a given situation mm. and getting to see the stakeholders change over time. Yeah. It's just really fascinating and important. I mean, it took uh, how many years before you maybe saw that change? Maybe around 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the blessing for my part that we got to continue the projects in different phases mm -hmm. um not all of it was successful um there were times that we were hindered by so many factors especially mm -hmm. like politics and funding yeah but the most convenient thing i guess is because it was just the next town so it was easy for us to just go back even yeah. using our own money and just uh saying hi to our partners um mm -hmm. to still continue the relationship even if the projects were over so um eventually uh, I, I couldn't help it I, I i was known to be like the erodi dolphin brother there <laughs> so I, I i gained a bit of popularity from the fishermen being like that which was also a responsibility at the same time wow that's great though i'm curious because you, you know you came in as a researcher with the university from the big city yeah even though you're local to the broader area yeah were you how do you think you were seen by the fishermen at the beginning uh, yeah i know that was also hard because um yeah it came from the city and i wasn't from there so i had to really um learn the language i mean not the language we have the same language but the 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 situation mm -hmm. like um don't come into la to the community feeling like you're this big shot guy. Uh, you have to be um, humble. You mm -hmm. have to be understanding of their situations. You have to know to you have to learn how to listen to them and to understand their situations as well. Um, they will say many things that will probably contradict what. I used to believe in, but I just had to be open to what they were saying. Mm 
Mm. Um, at first, it was easy for me when well, this is what I also realized. Um, I felt a bit proud when I was doing interviews with you, and then I was introducing myself as a student from Silliman University. I think they had. I don't know. I think they had a lot of respect for Silliman University, right. even though that university was far from that area. Uh, and then eventually, well, over the years, they learned that I, they, they knew that I already transferred to uh, University of St. LaSalle. And then it's just, it just takes um, getting to be, how do you say this? Warm with all the people there, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So there's less of a boundary. Yeah, yeah. You try to mm. to erase that boundary if you can. Yeah, I almost think, and this might be arrogant of me, but I've gotten this sense over the years that I had a, somewhat of a an advantage as a foreigner in some ways, a lot of disadvantages yes. in other ways, but an advantage because me being different and out of touch is expected. <laughs> Yes, yeah, and exactly. I was different enough for them to be really interested. Like, what is this completely different looking person doing? Yeah. Here? And maybe being half Asian makes me not so different that I'm intimidating. But I feel like, um, in some ways, that felt more comfortable to me than I think I would be working with a new fishing community in the US, if that makes sense. I think so, yeah. Um, I think they were really interested. Uh, in you when they saw you and then they were happy to share what you were what they had because you were a foreigner to them and then well you didn't really look all at all intimidating to them I guess (laughs) (laughs) being small also helps (laughs) yeah so they were also interested to share with you because uh, you're someone new right Um, maybe there's that um, colonialist mentality as well that um, yeah Maybe you know better, so they, they respect you more. Maybe that's also one thing. Yeah. Um, I, I remember even one one boatman told me, um, she doesn't look American. She is she Japanese? And uh, oh, I never knew that you were Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> and no, no, she's she's purely American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the boatman knew better than you. Another that was arrogant of me too. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, going back to the, the the very beginning when you were like, "Oh, I was kind of hoping I'd be on the boat instead of being your translator." I was also hoping I'd be on the boat. I was like, "Be on the boat." But then <laughs> and then I remember this moment, like my first day of doing interviews, and Luella was got, had the team ready to go on the boat, and she's like, "All right, good luck today." And I was like, "Wait, that's that's it. You're not I'm on the, I mean, I was with you, but I was like, I'm unsupervised (laughs) oh okay and it was really so I was really relieved to have you but uh it was such a good learning experience for me that kind of um launching of no you have you have to do this now you know someone's not going to hold your hand through the whole process (laughs) well now that you say it I never knew that you didn't know what you were doing then (laughs) I was just looking up to you and just following you (laughs) (laughs) um how did it feel to like make that decision to keep working on these dolphins after your thesis? Well, I really wanted to continue that work because um, when I was younger, I really loved watching Free Willy oh, yeah. and maybe Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. So, and maybe also Discovery Channel and National Geographic. 
and I would see that there were there were these very long term researches of well, these scientists just following killer whales for thirty years or more, and then mm-hmm. able to make this connection with the species that they were studying. And I, when I started my masters, I already was seeing that oh, I want to continue this research until for thirty more years, and maybe connect with these animals and you know become like like those people I saw on TV so yeah. uh, it was really fortunate for me that uh, we were offered this opportunity to to continue studying the dolphins it was also fortunate because well of course dolphins are very charismatic animals and that would get more funding easier mm-hmm. I guess yeah although you could have found a species that was a little easier to relate to <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry. You could have found a species that was easier to relate to as a researcher. Also, yeah, because your dolphins dolphins are shy. They don't make it easy on you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They're shy like me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There you go. (laughs) Um, I had a question, and where did it go? Oh, and I also feel like, again, you underplayed your, your work, I think, in having this whole research program where students could learn how to do research. I know that was a big priority for University of St. Lasalle-Bacolod. So I think what you did there was really a big contribution to the university and, and the students who went through it. What were, some yeah, of the, so. um, what were some of the impacts that you saw from that that really resonate with you? Oh, well, yeah, um, I think the university really benefited from it even mm-hmm. until now, I, I I know that they're doing this ag- accreditation for the university, and then they're still doing the researches that we've been doing for the past years. Um, I just want to be humble about it, but I think it it almost put the university on the map for yeah. research. I guess, um, but all I can say is was I was just following. Uh, the footsteps of my mentors also from Silimon University and from the people that I've been learning from. And um, it also takes people who are ready to get their feet wet and spend so many hours in the field. Um, That was really something new for the university to do. I mean, for students to go there and and do that kind of field work was really something new for for that kind of university who wasn't really used to field work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that also earned my students a lot of respect from their professors and from the people around them. Um, I also tried to let my students learn how to talk properly to the fishermen, which is mm-hmm. very important. So, yeah, um, yeah, that was really fun to do it. Um, I'm I'm glad that it got the recognition that. All that hard work deserves, yeah. I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I think that providing the, that field experience for young researchers is really formative for them. I know from just from my own experience, the chances I was really privileged to have to go to different field sites and just be immersed in conservation and not just learn about it in a classroom or from a textbook. Uh, were so important in not only shaping my interest in the career, but also just my understanding of it. And I saw the same thing with the the Myanmar students who, thanks to you for helping 
organized sure. that exchange where they visited <laughs> Negros. But uh, that's one reason it was so important for me to to allocate funding to that exchange. That that kind of immersive learning is really valuable, I think. Yeah, I think I'm really a believer of that because I was also trained in that marine camp in the Hugan Island. I'm really a mm. believer of just going out in the field and you learn more about it. Because being stuck in a classroom is very limiting. Mm -hmm. It's really, really different if you go out there and see it for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you about maybe a more difficult part of this Irrawaddy Dolphin story, which is what happened and what might still be happening with this inter-island bridge project. Oh, yeah, that's... There's a lot to take in. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm okay to talk about it. Yeah. Well, um, there has been this very long term plan before, even before we discovered the dolphins. There was already this dream to connect the islands of Panay, Gimaras, and Negros through bridges. And even I think I can remember during the first time that we went to the local government of Pulupandan, they already had this map where they were mm -hmm. envisioning putting a bridge to connect Negros with Gimoras. But um, I think it finally um, became closer to reality when, during the, around 2016, during the new government of President Duterte, where he wanted to do a lot of building projects, infrastructure mm -hmm. projects. And uh, one of those projects involved the construction of those two bridges. So people were already getting excited. Even the politicians were getting excited. So um, the problem was those bridges were going to be built right on top of the Irrawaddy Dolphin habitat, both in Gimaras Island and in Negros Island. Mm. So the biggest losers there would be the Irrawaddy Dolphins and the, the, the organisms interconnected in that ecosystem. So we tried our best as scientists to be objective about it, to tell them that um, if you build that bridge, this is really going to impact a very endangered species, not just the Irrawaddy dolphins, also the wetlands. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of endangered uh, water birds in those areas, and there are still so many things that we don't know about the estuaries there. So Isn't there a Ramsar going... site? It's a Ramsar site yeah. in Negros. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we tried to... Well, we tried our best to just say it, that uh, this isn't going to be a good idea. But um, that was the heavy part because I guess that bridge was like a dream for almost everybody in mm -hmm. the island, even the people that we work with. Yeah. So they were also conflicted, like, which side are we going to take in? Like, um, yeah. are we going to oppose it or are we going to support it? Things like that. And uh, it got really scary scarier even if even if you we were just objective about it um it got scarier during the the past administration where there was a lot of violence mm -hmm. uh, killings in the country yeah um people were uh, this drug war was wasn't only just targeting drugs they were also targeting people who were opposing the government in several ways, like um, especially environmentalists who were opposing projects in uh, very sensitive areas. Mm. Um, I think it was also that time when the Philippines was labeled as the most dangerous place to be an environmentalist. Yeah. 
So <laughs> can you imagine that? Um, uh, we were so anxious about it. So we were so scared that uh, we tried not to be so um, reactive to these things. Um, we, we tried our best to be just there, to be a stable voice for the dolphins and for the ecosystem. And then um, this was also the time that they were doing the environmental impact assessment for that bridge. And they shared their report uh, during a stakeholders meeting. And for several times that they shared the report, they did not mention the Irrawaddy dolphins or the dugongs or the turtles. So as being a stakeholder, we tried to tell them that um, you forgot what very important thing, the Irrawaddy dolphins are there, it's an endangered species. And they keep they kept on ignoring us mm. until eventually, um, I think it became like a circus, and <laughs> uh, it became too sensitive that the people involved started saying, "Mark, you gotta just shut up and keep quiet, Lilo." Okay. And um, yeah, we were even banned from doing our research in one of our partner. Uh, partner communities because they were angry because we were just saying things about the Irrawaddy Dolphins that were probably going to stop the bridge from being constructed there. Mm. So um, yeah. during that time when environmentalists were getting killed left and right, we just knew that we had to, okay, follow the advice, just keep quiet. Yeah. Um, so that really brought a lot of anxiety for me. Because um, that was also the time of COVID where you can't get out of the house. And then oh. we were just concentrating about all these um, things that were happening. Um, yeah, that was really heavy for me. So um, it was also hard to get support from many people because they knew that we were going against big people, uh, yeah. big organizations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... I felt anxious for you during that. I was really anxious. I think I still have that anxiety now. That, that's understandable, Mark. I mean, that's a lot to go through. Um, and it's it's not even like you were... My sense is that you all weren't being like rabid protesters. You were just asking that the EIA, the impact, environmental impact... Not even, not accurate. even. We weren't rabid protesters. Yeah, we weren't even protesting on the streets or right. things like that. But <laughs> You were just we asking were just... that the science be documented as is. And yeah. I mean, was there, there never was any consideration at all. Like no, I mean, I assume that these bridge routes are there because they were assessed as being what the safest or more efficient? they were the nearest i guess they were mm-hmm. the more we, they were the most practical uh, alignment i guess and then mm-hmm. you were just basically asking them to realign somewhere else um which was also hard for us because the the habitat is not i mean that the core habitat is small but we know that dolphins are able to move so we know that some parts of it are still um possible habitats for the dolphins and mm-hmm. some possible habitats are also dugong habitats so mm-hmm. we were also conflicted are we going to suggest the dugong habitat or the heroic <laughs> dolphin habitat <laughs> <laughs> which so, is cuter <laughs> yeah so so we we were conflicted as well and uh, all we were asking was to realign if not to cancel the project <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i mean that's 
I don't know what I would do in a similar situation, to be honest, right? Like, yeah, people were, yeah. were telling me, Mark, it's not worth it. Just shut up. <laughs> it's not worth your life. Yeah, and in the end, I mean, quite frankly, you could protest all you wanted, but if people in power want that bridge, they're going to get that bridge. Right? Yeah, they're going to get would, that bridge. You would risk. You would risk your safety for the same outcome. You know. Yeah, that was the hard thing for us. I mean, it yeah. was also a conflict of in, of principles. Like I've heard so many environmentalists who also get death threats and things like that, and but they still to continue to fight on. Which was, I don't know, is that a is that a practical thing to do? <laughs> it's a personal decision, I think, right? Yeah. Um, and it's you know, no one can ever blame anyone for taking their own personal safety seriously. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and uh, I'm curious: were there any projected impacts to the fishing grounds, or did the communities feel that the economic opportunities offered to them by the bridge would outweigh any impacts to fishing? Well, it's still a talk in pro progress. Um, mm -hmm. I've lately there were. Uh, there, uh, I mean, just I mean, a few weeks ago, there was another stakeholder conference organized by an org an environmental group, and I was surprised that that uh, there were still fishermen who were really concerned about their fishing grounds. Mm. Um, we also talked about the Irrawaddy dolphins, mm. and um, I was actually surprised that there were already organizations in Negros and Panay um, sprouting without even without even our help or without consulting us, they were already saying that um we need to protect the Irrawaddy dolphins. Uh, so there were champions there on the ground uh, that we didn't know of. So we, we were surprised. Yeah. And then, um yeah, so they organized these conferences, these stakeholder conferences, and we were also surprised that there were still fishermen who were genuinely concerned about their fishing grounds. So they were mm -hmm. saying, oh, yeah, talking about the Irrawaddy dolphins, but how about us? Uh, we're also going to be affected. Mm, yeah. That's so interesting. So these groups that are pro Irrawaddy dolphin, are they what are, are they out of schools or are they community groups or they're actually um community groups, locals who well they're they're very small groups, yeah. but uh, they're starting to mobilize because they're also concerned. Um so that's the thing that really made me happy. I guess uh, all those education campaigns that we did a few years before stuck to them and then they were able to just be genuinely concerned about on their own. I mean, on their own, we didn't right. really trigger this, but they, they started became, uh, becoming genuinely concerned about the ecosystem and the endangered species there. Wow, that's so cool. I didn't know that. That's so cool, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I was so impressed. And that kind of speaks to something I've seen a lot is that it's so easy to underestimate what people will do on their own when they yeah. have access to information and skills um and there's some kind of pathway for them to to mm -hmm. follow those interests that's really exciting actually yeah i hope it uh gains ground as well <laughs> yeah yeah um and i know there's i've seen some like online like on facebook like some awareness raising campaigns were those existing environmental groups that just took an interest in the Irrawaddy dolphins or were those connections that the university made you mean lately mm, maybe in the past four years <laughs> some of them were uh, yeah. part of those connections as well okay. um we we tried to ask help 
and collaborate with as much organizations as we could. Um, we were really a small group. Um, nobody really cared so much about Irwadi Dolphins as much as they would care about the Philippine Eagle, I guess, and mm. um, the Coral Reefs. So um, it was hard to get people to help, especially if they haven't really seen an Irwadi Dolphin. Ah, okay, yeah. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, um, there's a small community of environmentalists in our island who just help each other like uh there's a campaign there let's go there and help them go against uh coal-fired power plants so we help each other and there's a campaign there to save um the endangered species of birds so we go there and help them as well Mm -hmm. so it's just like helping each other as well that's really cool i I like (laughs) that that kind of networking um and i know like we chatted uh a bit while this whole drama was going on and you know you seemed really demoralized which makes sense. Uh, yeah but I how really thought you... everything was lost yeah and that's understandable um but I know you're not the only one in the field who's dealing with this or is afraid of this happening to their project so do you have any advice or maybe could you share a little bit about how you've been processing what happened like oh, you know, man. you could call it a quote unquote failure, and it's you know it's always hard when you're up against forces that you don't see any viable way of opposing. Mm-hmm. But how how have you dealt with that? Well, yeah, and until now I'm still dealing with it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm still processing it until now, uh, years after. Um, I guess you just have to to hang on to some as much hope as you can, even if there's just little hope that there that exists. Um, until now, there's times where I don't know if I can trust people because of what happened. Yeah. Um, because you don't know which side they're, they're on. And, um, but there are really core people who you can talk to about these things and then they will comfort you and then they will tell you that there are better things to... To focus our energy on let's just let's not waste our time just uh, thinking about our losses mm. we can still do these things so yeah um time is also something that helped me move on as well but uh, time also showed me that uh, eventually people will forget and eventually people will change and um see that you were right all along things like those mm-hmm. yeah i think that's also important we always talk about you need to have a long-term perspective in conservation and mm, yeah. that also applies to this, I think. Yeah, I, I know of this biologist who was also campaigning to save this particular bird species in Cebu. Mm. And because that the habitat of that bird species was going to be destroyed, they protested against it. And then eventually, I think they were banned from that area for some years but now they're back there they're welcome with open arms because the mm-hmm. local government suddenly realized how important this bird species is and then now the the story's changed yeah and i think i think changes in governance are important no matter where you are in the philippines it's especially the change in the local government and the municipal government where a lot of that power is held and uh, yeah you'll find i think that a given context can change really dramatically from one yes. regime, I guess, to the next. Yeah. 
for for some governments yes that's true for some it's it takes a lot of a lot more time and it's harder to change the government because it's, it's basically controlled by the okay. same people over and over again yeah yeah um that's something i also learned from melampaya sound but mm. more on that <laughs> for another time um so at the moment you're in japan and you've gone to the dark side studying finland's porpoise <laughs> uh, sorry i i've dilly-dallied too long talking about Irrawaddy dolphins we don't have a i have time but i want to respect your time but i'd love to hear it's no problem okay thanks uh, i'd love to hear a bit about yeah what motivate what motivated you to go to japan to do your phd <laughs> it's a long story but um <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I just needed to get out of the Philippines. I, I guess it was about time to just go get a PhD somewhere, and I think Japan was the nearest. Um, but yeah, uh, my se- my supervisor allowed me to work on marine mammals, even though he specialized on fish behavior. Um, that was a big step for him, I think. And he, <laughs> it was also the first time, I guess, that he was able to join marine mammal surveys, which I initiated for for our lab and uh so we worked on this f- species the finless porpoise which was very nice because it lives on a somewhat similar habitat as the Arawadi dolphins very estuarine and very murky shallow coastal areas mm-hmm. so he said that maybe you can do this and then you can apply this for Arawadi dolphins in your area which I-, I realized yeah maybe this could work <laughs> and then over the years i realized that nah our site has rougher seas and oh. murkier water. So I don't know if I could really use a drone for Irrawaddy dolphins. But yeah, I think it's worth a try. Yeah. Definitely. Um, purposes are really hard to study more than Irrawaddy dolphins because they're very solitary. They're they're not social animals. They're I think they're more shy than than Irrawaddy dolphins. So I don't really relate to that kind of shyness for an animal. <laughs> And yeah, you can't identify them because they don't have dorsal fins. So it's right. hard to see who is who uh, when you see them. Yeah. I, I thought Irrawaddy dolphins were frustrating because of their tiny Me too. Fins. Yeah, me too. Yeah. This one is harder. <laughs> more challenging. Yeah. Um, and when we met up in Japan, it was really interesting to hear like about your experience living and studying in you know in a country that's new to you. Uh, but you'd also mentioned some differences you've noticed in how the Japan approaches conservation versus the Philippines. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that. When I was in the Philippines, I was really engrossed in conservation work. It was a lifestyle. It was a religion for me because, like, maybe you saw you saw that on social media, like, um, trying to avoid plastic straws and these things. And yeah. Um, trying to be a, to live a minimal impact lifestyle as much as possible. Uh, when I came here in Japan, um, it was sort of different because this was a very developed country, one of the richest countries in the world, I guess. And then um, plastic straws weren't really the problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, um, like in the Philippines, we try to minimize our waste as much as possible, whereas in Japan everything that you buy is um is like disposable you have to dispose mm-hmm. of everything and 
but you see also how efficient their waste management is the streets are all clean everything is so clean when there's so much things that you can dispose of um yeah so it was really like confusing for me what's this it's a really different reality for me yeah <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it's also because um, it's already a developed world. Um, mm -hmm. Their concerns are much more different. Okay. Like I asked uh, about the construction of the bridge because I read in literature that the Finnish purposes were also affected when they, when they dredged the area for sand and they also constructed bridges. So I, I asked... It's one of those bridges. Yeah, there were so many bridges in, mm -hmm. around these islands in the Seto. And, and they're pretty rec relatively recent. Yeah, so yeah. I guess it also affected the fisheries and the dolphins. Oh, I mean, the purposes. So I asked around if... I, I asked my sensei if there were protests against these projects. And I think it's very Japanese that they don't protest. <laughs> they just follow. <laughs> I think. But uh, it's also because um, the, the fishermen were compensated or they were also they shifted to another species from what they used to fish okay so it was the way i heard it is it was not really hard for them to to accept that bridge or that, to accept those projects that damaged their environment but that's why i'm really engrossed into digging more about what happened because i want to see mm -hmm. how they learn from those things that would be really interesting. And I hadn't thought about, because I, like I said, I drove over that bridge and both my mom and uncle were like, oh yeah, these are, these are new. These were never here when we were growing up. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They used to, they used to go swim on those islands as kids, but they'd have to take a, a boat. Oh, um, cool. Yeah. Uh, and then, I was, okay, I knew you were studying finless porpoises in that same area. I never put two and two together that bridges and habitat. That would be really cool to look into because you know you might say so whoever is giving you this information might say it was easy for the fishermen to adapt and maybe they're right i don't know but uh it'd be interesting to get an insider's perspective i know yeah right yeah. <laughs> that's something that i really want to look into but the the language is really a barrier i don't know how to speak japanese so it's going to be hard for me to talk to especially the old fishermen who would have been affected right mm -hmm. yeah. yeah well i hopefully you're able to i mean i was able to do my initial interviews with someone like you so maybe i know <laughs> you can <laughs> that's what, that. what i thought of as well <laughs> yeah yeah because i feel like there's a lot of interest at least in my experience among younger researchers and learning how to do interviews. And um, I think it's a valuable skill to teach anyone. So I wouldn't be surprised if somehow you could find maybe a younger local student. Um, whether you have the time to do that, I don't know. But uh, in theory, yeah. it seems like it might work. <laughs> I am still looking for that someone to help me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. also talking to other professors as well. That's a good idea, like from different departments. Yeah. yeah. And for the finless porpoises you're studying, are there any threats facing them? Is there bycatch going on as far as you know? So far, I haven't really seen bycatch. I only saw a dead porpoise floating somewhere. We we don't know what caused its death, but um, I think bycatch isn't that high in the area where I study, but mm -hmm. it's also happening in other areas of Japan, just not here. Um, 
like I said, I think it would mean better if I knew how to talk in Japanese and do interview surveys. Yeah, but you know, out of all the countries where I've done work, I only became conversant in Tagalog and a little bit Bahasa Indonesia, not to the point where I could fully conduct or understand interviews. Um, and I was still able to, you know, if, if you're strategic and mindful about it, you can you can learn a lot even if you can't 100% understand what's going yeah. on in the conversation yeah. at the time. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, are there any other perspectives you've gained from being a student in Japan about what you want to do in, in the future with your work or, or what could be done in the Philippines, for example? Well, I think one thing that I also want to share with you, Tara, is uh, maybe also from you because you, you live in the States. Um, here in Japan, it's, everything is so much different from the Philippines. Everything is so much efficient. And I, I guess they've already gotten things figured out. And I try to look at these things that uh, if nature did suffer at some point of their history for this development to happen and for also mm -hmm. for them to maybe restore forests around their areas um it also made me realize like go around japan and all their rivers are cemented i mean mm -hmm. the banks of the rivers are all cemented if that happened in the philippines i would really feel bad about it because i know that a lot of the biodiversity will be affected so I, I also asked my sensei, um, aren't the biodiversity going to be affected if you do that? And then yes, yes, it's bad for the for the insects and the fauna there. But I couldn't really see that they were complaining about it or, right. <laughs> or it affected, affected them in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, so it also made me realize, am I just complaining too much every time I see <laughs> a development project being done in my country or... <laughs> That's a really interesting question, Mark. I think that two main points to make. One is that a lot of developed countries have benefited from being able to offload their environmental impacts to other countries. Uh, yes, yeah, that's right. So they've, you know, they've gotten to the point where they've destroyed their own habitats. And you know, in places in the states, we're seeing issues like like flooding, for example, where where waterway redirection wasn't thought through very well, and in Europe too. Uh, and so they, they're, at, they're at this relative position of a lot of natural resources and ecosystem services and biodiversity was sacrificed. And I wouldn't say that was necessary, but that's how it was. Mm -hmm. Now these countries are a certain status where they can now start using natural resources from other places and then they can start restoring their own areas. Yeah. It's kind of maybe yeah. an oversimplified way, but I, that's maybe the general trend. The other thing is, I'll, I don't know very much about Japan, but just from listening to my family talk about it, Hiroshima, you know, in decades since World War II, so much of the focus is on surviving. Yeah. You know, right. and, and kind of getting back to a place of being able to function. And I think that mindful development often is mm. sacrificed when when people are in a rush to achieve mm -hmm. a, a certain status or, or a goal and, and they're kind of in survival mode if that makes sense yeah that's right um 
But I wouldn't say that you are complaining too much <laughs> you know, <it's> <laughs> when you see these things happening because we, you, you know, we, we've seen in other parts of the world the negative impacts this yeah. thing can have and not just for, you know, people who love animals, but also for ecosystem services that actually benefit people and actually save, could save governments money. Um, it can actually be very harmful in terms of managing natural disasters. Uh, you know, you, you're unknowingly increasing the risk of having serious natural disasters with flooding, for example. Um, and just because that's the way it was done historically, it doesn't mean that it has to be done that way in the future. That said, I, I know it's really challenging. It's kind of like the whole situation with the Irrawaddy dolphins and the bridge, right? Like yeah, that's right. Progress. And then there's a the natural world. And then in between there's kind of all these trade-offs. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to predict what you lose and what you gain in any of the possible combinations of scenarios. Um, I guess, yeah, it's it's always a work in progress. And I think um, we always have to be there to strike that balance because we can't always just develop for the sake of economy and at the cost of the environment because uh, eventually it's going to all topple down to the other side. Yeah. Yeah, it's always uh, it's a dilemma, but yeah, that's what I said. In conservation, there's no black and white. It's a right. lot of gray area. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what I really learned a lot of gray area. Yeah, and that's what I think. Speaking back to your early inspirations from like National Geographic or documentaries, that's something I don't think a lot of documentaries capture well enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we're used to hearing about storytelling and conservation more concrete something bad's happening against something that's good and that we want to save whereas it's all really kind of intertwined um but yeah i i learned you know i know more about conservation in developing countries than i do about conservation in developed countries to be honest mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it is always very sobering for me to come back to the u.s after having been in the field or working in in Southeast Asia and just see how different the contexts are. Yeah, the reality the realities are so different. Yeah, it really is. Um, so for you in the future, do you have any idea of what you might want to do? I mean, I know you've got to focus on your PhD for another few years, but. Uh, yeah, I'd still, I'd still want to continue my work in conservation, but I also want to learn from other champions who've been doing it very well in other countries where there are Irrawaddy dolphins. So I really wish I have this opportunity to visit Myanmar and even Daniel Kreb in Indonesia oh, yeah. and Lusa in, in Malaysia. Um, I think they're really doing very awesome jobs in mm -hmm. what they do. And those are the things that I want to learn from and probably bring it back to the Philippines and um, yeah, immerse myself in that field, in that environment with fishermen and just working with them. Mm -hmm. It's really nice. I, I really admire those people. I, I share that admiration mm -hmm. and it makes so much more sense to learn from people like them than from people from other countries because one, I think, sad reality of Southeast Asia, it's, it's such a rich region in terms of its biodiversity and culture and just 
the fantastic people that I know that work there. Uh, most of the countries really struggle with, uh, shall we say, just and transparent governance. Yeah. And so I think you all face very similar issues. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's a struggle. Uh, that's what I also realized. Um, conservation is often unrewarding or mm -hmm. ungrateful. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you have to have that passion for doing that kind of work. Yeah. Or maybe I, I, while I was preparing for our interview, I realized maybe if you don't have that passion, you wouldn't be so attached. <laughs> you wouldn't be so affected. <laughs> maybe that's also a good thing. <laughs> It's time to go back to some meditation, Mark. Try to cultivate <laughs> both finding the meaning in things and the non-attachment. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like for people that we hire, like artists, uh, to do these things, to do artworks, so that we can get the word out there. You hire them, you give them money, and they're they're not so attached to what you want to do. So I. <laughs> but so maybe they're not so affected with all these things that are happening. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the challenge of any kind of purpose-driven career, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so much of yourself, it's not just a job. It's Yeah, it's not a job. Your identity in some cases. It's your, your moral beliefs. Mm -hmm. And it's like your drive for the impact you want to have on the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be a positive influence on people it can also be a negative influence right like either like you like, like you're expressing you, you have so much personal anxiety and mm -hmm. you know it can Im impact your your mental and emotional maybe even your physical health um, and then in other cases which is not what i see in you people get so attached to their identity in conservation that they're really unwilling to compromise and see other points of view yeah you know? well that time when i had to like <laughs> escape the Philippines and just be here in Japan and try to forget about what was happening in the Philippines it was uh, also a good time for me to rest and just um, try to detach slowly a bit yeah. and try to, to like find another identity. But uh, I know that there, it's still my identity. I couldn't really let it go um, yeah. fully. So I don't think I was really detached to it. I'm still for conservation. And yeah, yeah like you said, it, I, it might be a good example or a bad example at the same time. Um, like I said, during that stakeholders conference, one of my students who's also now working in conservation, um, she at also attended online. And then uh, without me asking her, she tried to ask attacking questions to the, to the, DP, to the DPWH, the government in charge of building the bridge. In my mind, oh, please oh. Just shut up. Just keep quiet. Let's just keep quiet for now. <laughs> Let's not trigger it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was I was happy that she did that. I mean, she did that for maybe just to also because she's part of the cause. But uh, like for me, I learned to shut up when I need to shut up sometimes, I guess. Yeah. And everyone's going to have their own boundary yeah. about where how far they're willing to push it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, just keeping an eye on the time. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine for me. Uh, but, you know, you, you're a busy PhD student. No, 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 it's Sunday. <laughs> I have time. It's okay. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, I really I have so much admiration for for you and for every one of our colleagues who are, you know, they're working in the places where they live and Thank you so much. yeah, well they can't just easily just hop on a plane and go back to some other existence. Like you really I mean, yes, now you are. <laughs> but you know, like long term you're you're really invested in what happens in your home country. Um and I do hope that someday we're able to do some more exploration on Irrawaddy dolphins. In the region. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. We have a project together, so that's true. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Mark. Thank uh, you so much, Tara. I appreciate your time. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's so nice to that. This is the second time I get to talk to you in a couple of months, which is I know. Yeah. For us. <laughs> <laughs> There's more. I, I need to ask you more. There's still a lot of things that I want to talk to you about, but soon, maybe next time. <laughs> yeah, please don't hesitate to reach out. And this yeah. times the difference actually works out pretty well for me. So, and I'm glad that you're in like two ways now. I, I'm glad that you're still working with conservation despite your commitment to like be in communication yeah. uh, with your brother. I think what you've learned from your your experiences with helping Danny is so much things that we take for granted that mm. is very much needed in conservation work or in many things in life, right? Yeah. So that kind of advocacy uh, really touches a chord. <laughs> oh, that means a lot to hear you say yeah. that, Mark. And I've actually noticed that myself actually uh, I'm thinking of having him co-host the final episode of this first season with me. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, just to talk about the similarities in you know, working in conservation and in disability justice. And in the end, it's all a human process. You know, it's involving yeah. people with, you know, with needs and rights and different levels of power and how we navigate all of that. So that's so cool uh, you, you notice that. Like you said, communication is key. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So Very, very important. Yeah. Cool. Well, I hope you have a nice rest of your day over there. You too, Tara. Thank you so yeah, much. So nice to chat. Thank you for your time. Yeah, take care. Take care. And please say hi to your family for me. I will. Bye. Bye. As Mark mentioned, we are both part of a National Geographic funded project on Irrawaddy dolphins in Malampaya Sound, also in the Philippines, um, with the NGO Lamave and our mentor, Dr. Luella Dolar. I'm excited to get back into dolphin work in a site that means so much to me. Again, that was the main site for my PhD, and I haven't been back since. Um, and I'm really excited to work with people who I really look up to and who are just really great to be around. So, Madamo Gidnas Lama, again, Mark. For those of you listening, I am so appreciative of your time, and I'm very grateful to those who have liked, reviewed, commented, shared, and even generously donated. It means a lot. If you have a moment, please consider giving this a like and review on Spotify or wherever you access your podcasts, and I would really love to see some discussion on the Substack site. Thank you all, and stay tuned for two special episodes. Bye for now. Jalahe, 
โลดาโรอาลอมเปียวชวนสยาด้วยเปสวนเนตุเปียวเนยาผุเซลโลเลเซลันเนลาปาจิเยกงโกซาวเนตุลาด้วยนายเชลโลเมยาเปยาเรม